The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be reading verses 16 to 23 and then examining those, those words. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. A shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Again, uh, please pray with me as we look at God's Word. Father, Your Word again, is, it's a light unto our paths. It's a lamp unto our feet so that we might know how to think rightly, how to live rightly. And Lord, I pray that You would use Your Word to renew our minds, to to help us to think in accordance with what is true. That You would help us to see ideas that, that we have embraced that are false. And that You would deepen our convictions in the truth so that as we hear false teachings and false ideas, that we might resist them. And so we pray that You would use Your Word here to, to have a deep impact on our heart. That we would be permanently transformed by it. And by it to, to be more faithful to you and more helpful to others. And so we pray that you would work in power now to give us understanding according to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, um, our van uh, got a piece of its window trim knocked off uh, when it was going through a car wash. And so I actually asked Petru what I should do in order to have it repaired and he told me that I could reinstall it if I just got some double-sided tape. And so that's what I looked for when I went to the store, but I couldn't find any. And, but I did find some magnetic tape, and I thought, hey, you know, the car's made of metal. Mag magnetic tape should work. I thought it would be a suitable alternative, but it wasn't. Uh, now that piece of window trim is somewhere between here and Newburgh on the highway. Uh, the moral of the story is listen to Petru. Some alternatives are not as effective as they might appear. And it's actually the topic of useless alternatives that Paul is addressing in the Colossians in this portion of his letter. As you recall, the Colossian Christians were being confronted by outsiders who were implying that what they had in Christ was not sufficient. 
that they needed to do uh, certain religious exercises or believe certain things uh, in order to grow spiritually, both to uh, be saved, but also then into to grow in their salvation. That Christ was insufficient to attain this spiritual maturity. And so instead, they're being told to trust in other alternatives. And here, Christ, uh, Paul lists three kinds of alternatives to Christ. Three kinds of useless alternatives. Jewish practices that are but shadows of Christ. Religious practices that are sensational, but frankly ineffective. And then worldly practices that are products of the self-imagination. Let's look first of all at the standards that are merely shadows. Paul writes in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in this section, what Paul is particularly addressing are Jewish practices that are rooted in the Old Testament. These were things that they saw as faithful means of attaining godliness. If you were to ask a Jew, how could I grow to be a godly man? These are the kinds of things that they would list out. The problem with these practices is not that they are sinful or, or immoral. They're just unnecessary given what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. As Paul says in verse 17, they are but shadows. Shadows of Christ. Christ is the substance. This is very similar to what he had said in the previous paragraph regarding circumcision. If you are already in Christ, you already have something that's far greater. If you have the circumcision of the heart, you don't need a physical circumcision because it's exponentially greater. So, the, the shadows compared to the substance in Christ is like comparing a movie trailer to actually watching the full movie or looking at a sheet of music or listening to that very same piece of music played by a full orchestra. The difference between smelling a juicy steak and actually sinking your teeth into one and tasting it in full. The difference between playing with a matchbox car and actually driving a Ferrari on the Autobahn. I mean, the, the, the diff, one is just a shadow. The other is the full substance. And so it's not that these things are bad or sinful. They're just, why would you even consider turning back to them? And this is why Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you for failing to embrace these things. I mean, just think, what would you think... If you're driving your Ferrari down the street and you end up getting pulled over by a police officer and he says, well, the reason I pulled you over is because I think you should know that playing with this matchbox car is far greater. That that's really living. You need to get rid of the Ferrari and just play with this. You'd think that I mean, the, 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 the illustration is ridiculous. It would never happen, which is meant to show the ridiculousness of turning away from Christ back to these Old Testament shadows. What these Old Testament shadows pointed to were exponentially small as far as their value in comparison to Christ. 
But let's look at what Paul lists here. First, he mentions food and drink. Here, Paul is thinking of the, the dietary regulations listed in the Old Testament. No pork, couldn't eat shellfish, can't eat carrion birds. Not that somebody would want to, but I guess if you're hungry enough. He also mentions drink. Uh, actually, there's, there's really no laws against drink. So commentators think that what he's referring to is alcohol because at times priests were prohibited from drinking alcohol, like when they were serving in the tabernacle. Also, Nazarites were required to abstain from tabernacle. But other than abstaining from alcohol at certain times, it was generally expected that, that one would drink alcohol. It was just part of life. Wine, for instance, was part of the Jewish uh, cuisine. The festivals that are mentioned would include observing feasts such as Passover, Pentecost, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, uh, Hanukkah, Yom Kippur. There's nothing wrong with a Christian participating in these festivals but observing them was no longer necessary because what they were ultimately pointing to was the work of Christ. You guys might recall that in our study of Numbers and in our study of Leviticus that those uh, festivals that were required for Jews to observe were all uh, signals in God's redemptive calendar. God was signaling the work that he would be doing throughout uh, his plan of redemption through that all pointed to the work of Christ. What these feasts celebrate find their consummation in Christ. So even these feasts are just shadows. Similarly, the new moon that's mentioned here are just monthly festivals that the Jewish people would celebrate. And also the Sabbath that's mentioned. This, this refers primarily to the weekly adherence of God's required day of rest for the Hebrew people. But it's not just referring to that seventh day rest uh, because the word that's used here is actually plural, Sabbaths. So it actually doesn't, in, it, it not only includes the seventh day of rest, it includes the Jubilee year and the Sabbath year as uh, listed in or explained in Leviticus chapter 25. But this brings up the critical question. Do Christians have to observe the Sabbath? And if they do, what does that look like? Well, many godly people have disagreed about this. Um, and so it's something we should look at carefully. But I think quite clearly, based upon what Paul says here, the answer would be no. And this is, this is maybe the clearest passage that instructs us in this regard. But I think there's other reasons to believe that uh, Christians do not have to observe the Sabbath or the Sabbath years, or the Jubilee years. And here are some reasons why it, that I think the Sunday is not, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. One of the main reasons Christians argue that we should observe the Sabbath is because of the fourth commandment. Uh, but if you look at, understand the fourth com, the, all the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments were given as an introduction to the law that God was then going to fill out uh, when he presented it to Moses, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. They were just the, the introduction, the prologue, so to speak. That there was nothing about the Ten Commandments that made them more special. In fact, you never find any 
warning from the Lord to say, make sure you keep these ten commandments, but the others are not as important. No, every single commandment was important. You break any of the law and you're going to have to um, make a sacrifice to atone for your sin. All of it was important. There's nothing ultra important about the first ten commandments. Also, just even regarding the fourth commandment, we should understand why it was given. And two reasons are given in Scripture. In Exodus 20, verse 11, it says that God gave the commandment in order to remind Israel of his resting after he had created all things, signaling to them that his plan for mankind was also to provide for them rest. He wanted them to rest in the garden that he created. He wanted them to work and work was a good thing, but he had designed them particularly to rest, just like even he rested. God didn't need to rest, but he wanted to signal to man that he had created them to rest in him. The other reason for the fourth commandment is Deuteronomy 5.15, where it explains that the day of rest served to remind the Hebrews that they were no longer slaves in Egypt. It would remind the Hebrews that they were no longer slaves. They're no longer slaves of Pharaoh who made them work till they you know, bled out their noses. I mean, they worked tirelessly. And even when they requested to have a rest, Pharaoh would not let them rest. And so God had now taken this people to be his own and he would make sure that they rested. In fact, he would force them to rest. Pharaoh forced them not to rest. He would require them to rest because they are his people and he loves them. So this keeping of the commandment would remind them that God had designed them to rest. The Sabbath was also part of the Ten Commandments because it signaled, in fact, it was the sign of the Old Covenant. It was the sign that Israel now belonged to God. So it would be very similar to a husband telling his wife to make sure she wore her wedding ring when she went to work or when she went out. That it would signal that she's spoken for. She belongs to him. This was Israel's way of showing that they didn't worship other gods. They worshiped Yahweh alone. They were his. Uh, The Sabbath also is very different than how we celebrate the Lord's Day. In fact, the Sabbath uh, was not actually established as a day of worship. I think that's a common misunderstanding because I think as Christians, we like to read our experience into the Old Testament. But really, the Sabbath was just as instituted quite simply to be a day of rest. Worship was something that took place every day at the tabernacle. It wasn't that just on Saturday, the Jewish community got together and came to the tabernacle and sang some songs and then they went home. No, that was something that happened every day. And Saturday was actually the day where they rested. They didn't do any work. And that was what it was established to do, but to remind them of God's plan to give them rest in the land that they were going to. Also, we know that the Sunday can't be the Sabbath because the very word Sabbath means the seventh day. So, Sunday is the first day of the week. The, the, the first day can't become the seventh day. God specifically called the Sabbath the Sabbath because it was on the seventh day. 
The early church chose to worship on Sundays because that was the day the Lord rose from the dead. But this didn't mean that God was designing the Sabbath to become a new day, to be the first day. So that, that's a significant discontinuity. The fact that God established the day of rest on the last day of the week is actually very significant because it's pointing to God's final plan for his people. The, the, the finale of his plan of redemption was that eventually he would bring them into a period of rest on the last day. So it's, it's signaling that that rest has not yet been achieved. It comes at the end. In fact, this is made clear in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The author of Hebrews is saying that rest is still yet to come. And then he goes on to say, let's make sure we enter that rest. And he says, so let's make sure we walk humbly before God and listen to his word so that we can come to that rest. So what's the rest that he's speaking of? It's the new creation, which we will enter when we receive our resurrected bodies, when Christ returns in the last day. And so all of these things, the Sabbath included, are just shadows pointing forward to what Christ is bringing to his people And so that's our hope needs to be in Christ. And if we have Christ, we don't need those other things because those things are simply pointing to him. If you have Christ, you don't need those other things. They're not wrong. They're just unnecessary. And so they don't need to pursue these things. Neither should Christians pursue religious standards that are sensational, but ineffective. That's the the second thing he mentions in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nursed in it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The command Paul gives in this paragraph is is actually paralleled with the previous command. Right there he said, let no one pass judgment. But here he uses the word disqualify. Now, actually, the word refers to something that an umpire would do or a referee in an athletic event. Right? Don't let anybody tell you that you have been disqualified from receiving the trophy because you don't follow these particular rules. Paul, Paul wants everybody to know if you've gone through the narrow gate, you are now qualified to receive the crown. All you have to do is trust Christ. But these these false teachers are telling everybody that passes through that, no, no, not only do you have to pass the narrow gate, you also need to go through this obstacle course that we have created. And if you can get through the obstacle course, then maybe you can get a crown. And Paul's saying that's a bunch of hogwash. It's not true. Because even to suggest such a thing is to suggest that Christ was not sufficient, that Christ was not a perfect savior, which is actually blasphemous. So based upon what follows, these teachers apparently believe that the spiritual qualifications that they're setting up rested on some religious practices. 
That's what Paul's telling the Colossians. They don't have to follow some man-made system of religious practices in, re- in order to receive all the benefits of Christ. And that's true either for their justification as well as for their sanctification. Your growth in Christ isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent upon your being connected to Christ, your being in Christ. But these false teachers are saying, no, you should engage in asceticism. But the phrase literally means to delight in humility. Now, of course, we as Christians, we delight in humility, but we can tell this is, this is not, not what it's referring to. It's referring to um, self, uh, humbling oneself in order to gain applause, in order to, to be seen as more spiritual. Expressions of humiliation to, to demonstrate one's devotion. It's driven by pride. It's acts of humiliation driven by a desire to exalt oneself. The worship of angels that he mentions is a little strange. Uh, Commentators aren't certain what this refers to. Um, It's possible that these Jewish teachers were, were somewhat synchronistic and they were suggesting that men should actually worship angels. And this is possible because even in the... The book of Hebrews, there's kind of an elevated view of angels that the author is trying to expose as erroneous. So it's possible that at the time, even some Jews were actually worshiping angels. But I think it's more likely that Paul is addressing just normal pagan idolatry here. Whereas in the previous paragraph, he was addressing Jewish practices. Here he's, he's just talking about general religious practices. Because as we know from 1 Corinthians 10, 20, pagan idols are really just representative of demonic beings. When a person worships Zeus or Hera or Aphrodite, they're, what they're worshiping is essentially a, a demon. Uh, demons are what is behind all um, pagan worship practices. And given the emphasis and the immediate context on the work of demons, right, the, the rulers and authorities that Christ has conquered, I think it's probable that Paul is most likely referring to uh, this uh, pagan practice of worshiping at idols. He also mentions visions. So apparently they, they made a big deal about visions and dreams that they had. The verbiage in the Greek suggests that that they actually were experiencing uh, illusions. These visions were of no real substance. They weren't coming from God. They were products of their own amplified imaginations. Uh, You can think of them as like Walter Mitty uh, visions. They, They weren't coming from some spiritual being. It was just... They had over-exercised imaginations. Paul actually says where these dreams come from. An arrogant, irrational, sinful mind. See, see the phrase puffed up? It describes arrogance. This over-swelling pride. That one is superior spiritually. It says beyond reason. That means they're, they're being irrational. They're being unthinking. These are men that are duped by the sensational. Wow, it looks impressive. It must be true. Somebody says, I've had this great religious experience. And they go on in detail about it. And then people are believe them for whatever reason, because it's just so sensational. 
created by their sensuous mind. Literally what that says in the Greek is by the mind of his flesh. These are these visions are the product of their sinful fleshly nature. They're not coming from God. They're not even coming from good angels. They're coming from their sinful flesh that wants to elevate them and so they can look down upon other people spiritually and compel them to follow them and look up to them. So all of these alternatives that Paul lists here, not only are they rooted in the flesh and in really sin, they're also completely useless as far as attaining real spiritual growth. I mean, this would be like a, a, a man who's crossing the desert and he comes to a Bedouin and he seeks, he's seeking for water. And the Bedouin says, uh, yeah, go this direction. And instead of leading him to uh, the, the water to quench his thirst, he leads him to a bog filled with oil. It's not going to quench the thirst. It's useless. These teachers of various practices that they list, that they insist will make a person more godly and more righteous, but they're just empty. They actually don't do anything. They're ineffective. Because there's only one way that a person can gain any righteousness. There's only one way that anyone can grow in their godliness. And that is by abiding in Christ. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, that's the one who will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what Paul's referring to when he writes, They're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Growth comes from God as we are abiding with the head, as we stay attached to the head. The head is what nourishes us. Of course, the head we know already because of what we've seen already in Colossians. It's Christ. Growth comes from our being integrated with Christ. And it's not through religious practices. It only comes through holding fast to the head. Of course, that that begs up this question. How does one hold fast to the head? How does one abide in Christ then? Well, quite simply, it's by trusting him and doing what he says, following his commandments. If you wanted to get really practical, you could speak of the means of grace, right? the word, prayer, fellowship with the body of Christ. But even so, even in saying that, we need to be careful to d- distinguish the difference between the means of growth, which comes from abiding in Christ, holding fast to the head, and the means of grace, which enable us to do that. The means of grace help us to abide in Christ, and it's an abiding in Christ that we actually grow. So technically speaking, it's not the means of grace that bring about growth, but the means of grace assist us to abide in Christ, which brings about the growth. You could think of the means of grace like a water hose to a garden, right? We're God's garden. He wants us to bear much fruit, but we're not going to bear fruit unless we receive the living water that comes only from him. And so the hose is, is a necessary means of getting that water from the faucet to the garden. But the hose is only effective if it's connected to the faucet. If it's just a hose that's being carried around and it's not connected to the head, the faucet, 
It's not giving forth any water. It's empty. It's useless. So, notice that the things that Paul mentions here aren't even biblical means of grace. But even if they were biblical means of grace, prayer and the Word, even that would be ineffective unless they were abiding in Christ. Right? A hose is in and of itself ineffectual if it's not connected to the faucet. People can read the Bible. They can pray. They can, they can go to church every day of the week and yet find no benefit. And we know this because Paul tells uh, husbands, if, if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, God's not going to hear your prayers. You can pray all you want, but if you're living in unrepentant sin, you're not abiding in Christ and you're not going to grow and you're going to wither spiritually. Even if you're doing all those disciplines, right? You could, there's lots of people who read a lot of the Bible, but they're not growing spiritually because they're not even born again, right? It's not the discipline that brings about the growth. Those disciplines connect us to the head and he's what causes us to grow. We, he is the vine and we are the branches. So you can have all the hoses in the world, but if those hoses aren't hooked up to a water source, they're of no benefit. And these, these unbiblical means of grace that Palm actually mentions here are just sensational and ineffective alternatives. They're like hoses that, that light up and they've they got glitter on them. They're beautiful, but they aren't hooked up to any faucet. And they're full of holes. And so they're just a complete waste. So they need to be avoided. Thirdly, Paul says we also need to avoid worldly practices that are products of self-made religion. Notice verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Notice that in verse 23, that what Paul is particularly concerned about, or actually what the Colossians are concerned about, why the Colossians are even listening to these false teachers is because they want to avoid fleshly indulgence. You see, it says, they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. These Colossians, they don't want to be continuing sin. They want to grow up spiritually. They want to be mature Christians. And so these ideas, these practices that are being presented to them by these outsiders look really attractive, but they're of no value. They're thought to produce holiness, but they're ineffectual. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul calls these regulations elemental spirits of the world. You could think of them as uh, the basic means that people use to try and tap into spirituality, to get spiritual power, giving sacrifices to gods or avoiding taboos, doing certain things, don't doing certain things. And Paul's saying, if you follow that line of thinking, it's like having received your doctorate in spirituality and then, then going back to study the ABCs of religion. You don't need that stuff. It's, it's, it's basic, empty, worldly thinking. You have Christ. Specifically, he mentions prohibitions such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
And these are rules made regarding things that perish, things that pass away. They're not eternal. They're rules for things that perish for people that perish. Dead rules for dead people. Rules that don't actually bring any life. Only death. And in verse 23, Paul then goes on to explain why these world regulations, worldly regulations should not be pursued. He gives three reasons. First of all, they possess an appearance of wisdom. Right? The key word here is appearance. In other words, it's just an appearance of wisdom. It's not real wisdom. Wisdom is good, but the mere appearance of wisdom is bad because it's false. It's not true. Such religious, religious regulations are only a mirage because what appears to be really wise is, is nothing but folly. Secondly, they promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. They don't help strengthen a person. They weaken a person. They don't, they don't produce any real growth. They only promote self-made religion. Asceticism and severity of the body, that, that refers to the purposeful neglect of the body's needs. People think, hey, I will grow in my spirituality if I avoid comfort, if I avoid food, if I avoid certain drinks. Anything that makes me feel cozy, because coziness must be a sinful thing. And Paul is describing precisely what defines the behavior of monks and nuns. Martin Luther once said, I myself was a monk for 20 years and I so plagued myself with prayers and fastings and wakings and freezings that I almost died from the cold. He did that because he thought in doing that, he was actually gaining spirituality. All he was doing was tormenting himself. It brought not one ounce of spiritual growth to him. It might have impressed a lot of people. It might have even impressed himself. In his case, it didn't. He just grew in despair. But it's because he realized it's not working. And it's, it never has worked. There's only one means of growing spiritually. And I think it's ironic that this is actually how the church has defined godliness for centuries. In fact, some people still do think that this is what real godly people look like. They, they're very, they afflict themselves. And yet, these are the very practices that Paul explicitly tells Christians to avoid. How did the church miss this for thousands of years? And still do, I say. Thirdly, Paul says, these things are of no value in stopping fleshly indulgence. Paul says such practices are completely useless. Fasting is not going to help you conquer your idolatry of food. Living in a monastery is not going to actually help you conquer your struggle with lust. Living in a commune is not going to help you avoid the influences of the world. Why not? Because the problem is not out there. It's in your heart. Remember what Jesus explained to his disciples in Mark 7 after being criticized by the Pharisees for not following their man-made regulations regarding food. Jesus says, 
It's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They're what defiles a person. The problem, the reason you lust isn't because of some skimpy swimsuit on a, on a television ad. It's because you yourself are consumed with sin. You're a sinner. The problem isn't out there, it's in here. Well, how do you change what's in here then? Well, something drastic needs to happen. The heart needs to be changed. Asceticism, legalism, discipline are ineffective in putting sin to death. Because the problem is not the flesh, it's in the heart. Right? The problem is not an external problem, it's an internal problem. But of course, many Christians are going to say, but I still struggle with sin. What do I do in that case? I've been born again, and yet I still struggle. How do I grow spiritually? How do I resist the flesh? The only way to conquer the flesh is by walking the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's, but how do we walk in the Spirit? We walk in the Spirit as we abide in Christ. Again, whoever abides in me and he, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And what's so helpful for us to realize is that all the means of grace are, are geared to do that. Because there's some people that will focus on uh, spending hours in prayer, but then they neglect the word or they neglect time in fellowship. They, or they, they just choose not to repent from sin and they wonder why they still continue to sin. Well, it's because they're not abiding, because they're not repenting. And they're not pursuing Christ. They're not seeking to love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're just seeking to make sure that nobody condemn them for failing to do whatever religious practice is available. Like the only way to conquer the desires of the flesh is to abide in Christ. And does that, that takes a lot of work. And God's given us means to help us do so. But we need to avail ourselves of all the means and then respond rightly to those means. Right? As we see opportunities to love people, we need to love people. We can't turn our heart from them. As we study the Word, we not only need to know what it says, we need to actually do what it says. As, as we pray, we need to actually engage all our heart and mind in prayer. We can't just do it as a practice. I mean, there's so many people that, that think, okay, I'm a Christian, therefore I need to go to church. And they think just showing up in church is going to change their resistance to the flesh. It's not. Because... You're not going to resist the flesh if you're not seeking to worship Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Doing everything you can, moment by moment, to live for Him and no longer for yourself. The growth only comes from holding fast to the head. And if you tolerate any sin, or if you neglect to do the things the Bible's telling you to do, you're not going to abide. And you're going to wither spiritually. And that's what Paul's saying. You have all you need. You don't need to go out and do more things. You have Christ, but take full advantage of Christ. Trust Him. Obey Him. Cling to Him. Treasure Him. 
And these, these Colossians, they were attracted to the false teachers because these, these false teachers were promising alternatives that were really going to work to help them conquer their sin. And the problem was not what these things promise. It's that what they promise is actually ineffective. Those things are useless. They're useless because they're not faithfully drawn out of Scripture. They're products of this, their own self-made religion. And we, tend to, we have this tendency to want to make our own self-made religious things. And usually the standards we follow are standards we create because we like those standards. We find we're really good at something spiritually, and so we create our own little standard that we therefore will then judge everybody else by. Right? I get freed up to have time in prayer. And so I'm going I'm to pray three hours a day. And I find that so refreshing. But if other people don't pray an hour, two hours, because they have to work every day, well, they just must not be as spiritual as I am. You see, even we ourselves can do the very same things that Paul's warning the Colossians against. We can be the false teachers because we create our own grids of spirituality not because they're derived from the scriptures, but because we want to create our own religion. So by which to elevate ourselves and to condemn others. And so we need to both be aware of what other people are telling us. That, that you don't need anything else from Christ. Remember that. And we also need to be aware of what we think uh, brings about true spirituality. All right? It's not what a person does externally. It's a person's true worship of Christ. That's the truly spiritually mature person that loves him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and strives to love others as he has loved them. It's not our external disciplines. Those are just a means to help us abide. John Bunyan never included a desert scene in his his epic story of Pilgrim's Progress. But imagine that, that Bunyan had Christian travel through a desert. And eventually, Christian comes across this, this beautiful, cool oasis. And a large number of people were already enjoying themselves in, in the pool. And they, they, they joyfully invite Christian to join them. And, and he jumps in eagerly. And after swimming in the pool a while, uh, a man named Worldly Wise Man swims over to him. And he asks Christian, Christian, don't you think that, that a nice ice-cold soda would be super refreshing right now? I'll show you where real refreshment can be found. And then Christian looked, and he, and he thought that he saw off in the distance, maybe a hundred yards away, but it was a little blurry, possibly a mirage. He thought he saw... Nevertheless... He decides to stop biting the pool and he sets off after this mirage. And, and immediately he felt oppressed by the desert heat and his, and his feet were burning from the, the hot sand and his strength rapidly withered. But worldly wise man encouraged him. He said, press on, soldier. Don't be like those spiritual loafers playing around in the pool as if they own the place. Remember that you are earning the refreshment you are seeking. You are willing to endure the heat and the burning sand. And just think about how much they will admire you when you return and envy you when they see that ice cold Coke in your hands. And as he was speaking, Christian heard his friend Faithful calling out to him. Hey, Christian, 
Where are you wandering off to? And I'll let you decide how the story ends. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God that we love. And we ask that you would take our hearts. Take and seal them for your courts above. Lord, guard us from our own sinful pride. Our own tendencies towards legalism and self-righteousness. And Lord, guard us from being blinded by false teaching as it comes out of fellow Christians or from cults or from false religions. Lord, help us, help us to grow in confidence that all we need we have in Christ. In Christ, we ask that you would help us to learn to abide, that we might bear much fruit and not carry out the desires of the flesh. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.